Luke 2, 22 to 52. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce your, through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from that temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We're taking a little break from our series in 1 Corinthians to consider this morning one of the stories of uh, Jesus' infancy and, and boyhood. Uh, the plan, Lord willing, in the new year is to get back into 1 Corinthians and hopefully have that finished uh, up by the end of April. But uh, for this morning, we're going to think about Luke uh, chapter 2. And in many ways, in Luke chapter 2, at the end of uh, the, the chapter, we're, we're meeting people who have been waiting, uh, waiting for God to deliver the pro on the promise that he's made. And waiting can be extremely difficult. I think any, any child at Christmas... Uh, knows that. Uh, but at least if you're, if you're waiting for Christmas, you know you have a date on the calendar. 
uh, you know your wait has, a, has an end point. So if you're a kid and you're excited about Christmas, you know you've got six more days to go. What's really difficult is when you're waiting for something that you know is going to happen, but you just don't know exactly when it's going to happen. This is the situation in which Ebenezer Scrooge found himself in Charles Dickens' classic ghost story, A Christmas Carol. If you remember, after being visited by the ghost of Christmas past, Scrooge was left alone and fell asleep waiting, anticipating the arrival of the, the second ghost, the ghost of Christmas present. So Dickens tells us, he says of Scrooge, awaking in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But finding that he turned uncomfortably cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new specter would draw back, he put them every one aside with his own hands and lying down again, established a sharp lookout all around the bed. For he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance and did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous. Gentlemen of the free and easy sort who plume themselves on being acquainted with a move or two and being usually equal to the time of day express the wide range of their capacity for adventure by observing that they are good for, for anything from pitch and toss to manslaughter, between which opposite extremes, no doubt, there lies a tolerably wide and comprehensive range of subjects. Without venturing for Scrooge quite as heartily as this, I don't mind calling on you to believe that he was ready for a good, broad field of strange appearances, and that nothing between a baby and rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. And consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes. Ten minutes. A quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time, he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light, which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant or would be at, and was sometimes apprehensive that he might at that very moment be an interesting case of spontaneous combustion without having the consolation of knowing it. Well, hopefully your Christmas celebration will not lead you to wonder if you've been a case of spontaneous combustion. But in our passage from Luke's Gospel for this morning, we do see the story, as I said, of God's people waiting patiently, waiting for the arrival of God's promised salvation. Now, in the passage Kelly read for us just a moment ago, we're, we're jumping right into the middle of a, a story that's already been going on. So let's just make sure we're on the same page in terms of, of, of where this story begins. Uh, our author is a man named Luke. He was a physician. Uh, he was a Greek-speaking Gentile who wasn't one of Jesus' original followers, but became a follower of Christ later. Uh, and a, he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And it seems that Luke had an extended period of time in the city of Jerusalem, probably in the mid-50s A.D. Uh, Paul was imprisoned in the city, and it's likely that that's when Luke began to interview his sources and pull together what he calls his orderly account of Jesus' life. This would explain why Luke's gospel has the most complete and detailed narrative 
surrounding the birth of Jesus. So if you've read the other gospel accounts, Luke has far more detail and far more information about the things that happened before Jesus' birth than any of the other gospel accounts. And it seems that that can be understood as, as Mary's influence. It seems that while Luke was in Jerusalem, uh, he interviewed Mary and recorded her story. We're not certain of that, but it does seem to make sense of all the data. There in verse 51 of our passage, for example, we see that uh, we're told that Mary treasured up all of these things in her heart. And actually in verse 19 of chapter 2, he tells us that same thing. Uh, Luke is able to tell us that Mary took these sort of careful mental notes, uh, and it seems uh, that he was the beneficiary of those notes and is passing them on to us here. So up to this point in the story, Mary has given birth to her baby, conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. She's named him Jesus in accordance with the instructions she received from the angel. The shepherds have come and visited Mary and Joseph, and they've gone on their way praising God and giving him glory. And in our passage for this morning, we see the stories of two different trips that this young family took into Jerusalem while Jesus was a child. There in verses 22 to 40, we read about Jesus being presented in the temple as an infant. And then in verses 41 to 52, we read about another incident in the temple when Jesus was about 12 years old. And so as we approach Christmas coming this week, uh, let's look at each one of those events in turn and see what we can learn about waiting. Let's begin there with the story of the infant Christ being presented in the temple uh, there in verses 22 to 40. There's two things in particular uh, I want us to see in this little story. Uh, The first thing I want us to see is that this story gives us a glimpse of the nature of God's salvation. We see here a a glimpse of the nature of God's salvation. Uh, There in verses 22 to 24, we see Mary and Joseph are coming to Jerusalem to fulfill the law of Moses. So the law required a special dedication for the firstborn son of every family. And there was a special purification offering that that women would offer uh, as well after giving birth. And so immediately we're we're tipped off that this is a a God-fearing, law-abiding couple. Uh, Mary and Joseph are being careful to follow the commands of the Lord. There in verse 41, we learn a little bit later, they're zealous to keep the instructions about Passover as well. Uh, But we also see that this is a poor couple. Uh, In Leviticus 12, we read that the offering that's supposed to be given for a a firstborn son, it's meant to be a lamb. So the idea was that as you dedicated your firstborn son to the Lord, you brought a lamb as a sacrifice. But there in verse 24, we're told that Mary and Joseph actually are offering two birds instead. There was a provision in the law as a sort of mercy that if you were very poor and couldn't afford the lamb, uh, you could instead offer birds as a substitute. And that's what Mary and Joseph are doing. So we see that they are a a God-fearing, law-keeping, poor couple. And so they come to the temple to go about their business, and they have two remarkable interactions with two remarkable people. Uh, First, they meet a man named Simeon. Uh, We immediately see that this is a a good man. In verse 25, he's described as righteous and devout. So when Luke uses that word righteous, he's usually describing someone's conduct towards other people. Uh, Devout has the sense of being careful about religious duties. Uh, In addition to that, there in the end of verse 25, we see the Holy Spirit is particularly on Simeon. According to verse 26, one of the manifestations of the Spirit's presence and activity in this man's life is that he had been told 
that he would be blessed to see the Lord's Christ before he died. Uh, that word Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah is, a, is the anointed one, the, the ruler, the king that God had promised to send to Israel to, to save them, to deliver them. And so Simeon's been told that he will live to see the Lord's Christ. We're not told this explicitly. The context seems to indicate that Simeon must have been an old man at this point, that he'd been waiting for a long time, and that he was prepared and ready to die whenever it was his time. He was just waiting to see the Lord's Christ. And so when Simeon arrives in the temple and he encounters the infant Jesus, it is revealed to him that this child is the fulfillment of that spirit-wrought promise. And so there in verses 29 to 32, he, re he responds by blessing God. And then in verses 34 to 35, he, he delivers a, a prophecy about what this child's life will mean. The, the next person we encounter is a, an old widow named Anna. She was a prophetess. We see there in verse 37, she made it her life's work to fast and pray. I was struck this week as I was meditating on this passage by the fact that in many ways this church has been built on the work of faithful widows who, who pray uh, earnestly. So those of you who've been around for a long time will know names of saints like Nancy Higgs and Doris Jenkins. They come to mind immediately, faithful widows who have gone on to their reward now, but who spent much of their final decades praying and seeking the Lord's favor for our church. It seems that Anna is one of these godly widows who devotes herself to prayer, and so she came to the temple, and either she met the infant Jesus, or it was just revealed to her somehow that he was there, but, but there in verse 38, she begins to give thanks to God and to speak to the people there about this child. And so what do these two interactions with, with godly older saints tell us about the nature of the salvation that this baby is going to bring? Well, I think it tells us quite a bit. But I want to look particularly there at the, the two statements that we see in verse 25 and verse 38. Here you see two sort of parallel statements about what the devout people of Israel were doing at the time. We read there in verse 25 that there was a man named Simeon, that he was righteous and devout, and that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. So whatever that means, Jesus is clearly it. Jesus is the consolation of Israel. That's what Simeon had been waiting for. And when he sees Jesus, he says, I've seen the Lord's salvation. That word consolation has the sense of bringing relief to someone or something that's suffering. It has a sense of comfort or, or healing for someone who's been wounded or hurt. And, and this idea of comfort or, or consolation is a really important idea in the Old Testament. There's a, a promise in Isaiah chapter 40 that the Lord would, would bring consolation or comfort for his people Israel. We read there in Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Uh, just a few chapters later in Isaiah 49, verse 13, we read this. It says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people 
and will have compassion on his afflicted. The idea is that Israel had suffered terribly. In the past, they had been sent off into exile because of their idolatry and sin. In Simeon's day, they were under the boot of Roman oppression, waiting for someone to save them from this terrible suffering. And so the the prophets, as the Old Testament goes along, begin to speak of of comfort. They begin to promise the nation of Israel that, that consolation was coming. There would be healing for their wounds and relief from their suffering. This was the consolation that had been promised to Simeon. He's longing to see the the healing and restoration of the nation from all of its past hurts and losses and miseries. So Simeon understands that this child will be the comfort, the the consolation of Israel. There at the end of verse 32, Simeon prophesies that he will restore glory to Israel. He's going to make everything better. Simeon is waiting for God's promised consolation. Now, if you look down at the end of verse 38, you see a very similar statement. Anna begins to praise God and to speak about this child. Luke tells us, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So Simeon's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now we see that there's a group of faithful people in the temple who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, I think Luke means for us to see this as something of a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. In Isaiah 52, verse 9, we read, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So God promised that he would comfort, he would console his people, and he also promised them redemption. So what does that mean? Well, to redeem someone is to free them from bondage. Redemption was a term commonly used of the price that was paid to to purchase someone out of slavery. So you could pay a master a certain amount of cash and redeem someone who is in slavery. You could set them free. You can see how this would be a delightful promise to, to Israel as they suffered under foreign rule. That God would indeed send a redeemer that they would be set free, purchased out of bondage and oppression. Jesus is bringing salvation to Israel, and it will be consolation and redemption. But the odd thing is that Jesus isn't coming to console and isn't coming to redeem them in the way that they expect. It seems pretty clear that The people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem in particular, thought that when God's salvation arrived, it would look like political and military deliverance. They thought that the Messiah, the Lord's Christ, would come and overthrow the Roman government and reestablish the rule of King David in Jerusalem. But as the story goes along, as we read through Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus came to deliver and to redeem and to comfort and to console people in a a far different way, in a far more important way. Because Jesus didn't come ultimately to redeem Jerusalem from Roman oppression. Instead, he came to deliver God's people from their sins. He came to give his life as a redemption price for our freedom from sin. Jesus came to, to secure our pardon, to secure consolation for us, as we suffer under our past guilt. 
Jesus came to offer himself as a, a price for our redemption from the power of sin. That's what this baby was born for. That's why Jesus died on the cross. So that people like Simeon and Anna and these faithful brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and you and I could receive comfort and redemption. That's what Jesus brings to his people. So friends, if you are dogged by guilt over things you've done, if you long for comfort, if you feel like a failure, if you feel hurt and damaged, know that Jesus came to bring you consolation and comfort, to bring you healing and forgiveness, redemption and mercy. If you long for freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from patterns of selfishness and anger and bitterness and negativity that have characterized your life, maybe even going back generations in your family, know that Jesus came to give his life so that you could be redeemed from all of those things. Jesus came to execute a great exchange. On the cross, he took all of your pain, all of your shame, all of your guilt on himself. There was no one to console him on the cross. There was no one to redeem him or release him from the punishment he bore. But in return, you get his righteousness and goodness You get forgiveness and cleansing from your sin. You get consolation of knowing that you are God's beloved child and redemption from sin. That's the nature of the salvation that this child is born to bring. Consolation to those who suffer and redemption for those who sin. But I think the really important question, the second thing that I want us to see from this section of Luke's narrative is who exactly gets this comfort? Who gets this redemption? Who experiences this salvation? I think that's really the the big question here. How do we make sure that this applies to us? Well, what we see is that this salvation that Jesus is bringing doesn't come just to Israel. There in verse 32, you see that Jesus came as a light for revelation to the Gentiles as well. God's salvation, as it were, is going worldwide. Jesus isn't just the redemption of Jerusalem, but all the world. That's a major theme in Luke's gospel as you read through it. But you see here, even at the beginning, it's clear Jesus didn't come just for the Jews. But he's come to do something much bigger, much, much broader. This is salvation for people from the entire world But that doesn't mean that Jesus' salvation will be received by everyone. You see there in verse 34 that Simeon prophesies that Jesus was appointed for the rise and fall of many. You see, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now that might sound strange to us, but again, it's an idea that has its roots in the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 8, we read this of the Lord. It says there in Isaiah 8, verse 14, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So the idea is that the Lord's promised deliverer would in fact bring division 
He would save some, but would be a cause of, of destruction for others. Jesus himself seems to understand this very clearly about himself. In, in Luke 20, uh, we see that he speaks uh, thusly to the religious leaders. He looked directly at them, Luke 20, verse 17, and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is applying that Old Testament passage to himself and saying that he will, in effect, split the nation in two. To put it in Simeon's words there in verse 34, many of the religious people of Jesus' day will see him as someone who must be opposed. Jesus, in a sense, will be a test. His ministry will provoke a reaction from those who come into contact with it. Some will reject him. Others will receive him. So who gets to experience the, the consolation and the redemption that this child is, is born to bring? But what we see in this story is that it's, it's for those who wait for it. It's those who are waiting for this salvation. It's those who are longing for this consolation and redemption. Those are the ones that receive it. Again, look in verse 25 and verse 38. There, there is a group of faithful Israelites patiently waiting for God to bring about their redemption. They've invested all of their hopes, all of their ambitions in the coming of this promised Savior. So much so that, that Simeon, once he sees it, he's like, I can check out now. Right? I can die in peace. This was his all-consuming passion. It was the one thing he truly wanted in life. Right? His, his life could be defined by the verb waiting. He was waiting to see the Lord's salvation. And friends, the same is true for us. We're not exactly in the same situation that Simeon and Anna were in. We're not waiting for this salvation to come. It's already come. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. But the heart that receives this salvation with joy is the same. It, it sees Jesus as the one thing worth putting all of your hope into. The same heart that, that just longed to see Christ in Simeon and Anna's day is the same heart that receives him now. And so let me ask you a question. What is it that you are waiting for? What is it that you, that you would say characterizes your life? If Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel... And Anna's crowd in the temple was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What, what are you waiting for? If we were writing you into this story, what would be the, the direct object of that sentence? What have you invested your hope in? As you look into the future, what holds out promise to you? What solution are you looking for to your problems what, what are you working towards in order to give your life a sense of completion? When Simeon sees Jesus, he basically says, now I can die. That was all I needed to, to see this salvation. I wonder what you would need in order to say the same thing. What would give you such a sense of, sense of joy and completion and fulfillment that you could say with Simeon, I'm ready to die? The salvation that Jesus brings divides the world into two. Some people look at him and don't see anything worth waiting for. He's not their hope. Their hope is in finishing their education, 
getting that job, building a career, getting married, having kids, getting the kids out of the house, right? getting the big home in the burbs, making money, retiring peacefully. But other people see Jesus as their only consolation and redemption. They see that he is the one thing worth waiting for. The Apostle Paul certainly fell into that latter category. In the book of Philippians, he tells the church about his imprisonments, his many trials and difficulties. And he tells them that he really doesn't know how his life is going to turn out. He says, I I might live and I might die. I really don't know. But he tells them also that he's so invested in Jesus that he's kind of ambivalent. He sees that if he lives, he can serve the church faithfully, which is good. But he really wouldn't mind dying because then he would get to be with Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, we read this. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Friend, where is your hope? What are you waiting for? What are you anticipating? Are the things you're waiting for things that can save you? The thing you're hoping for, can it bring real, true consolation to your soul and redemption? You know, Jesus is coming back. Paul tells the Philippians just a bit later in chapter 3, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life in 2021 is a life of waiting. Not exactly like Simeon and Anna. We're not waiting for a baby to come, but we're waiting for Jesus to return as a victorious king to make all things new. And when he does, we will have an experience like that of Simeon and Anna, where we will see Jesus face to face, and we'll be able to say, this is what I've been waiting for. This has made it all worth it. If your hope has been placed in Christ, that will be a joyful day. But if your hope is anchored in things here on earth, things that cannot last and will not ultimately satisfy, you'll find no consolation and no redemption in the day of Christ. So friends, let's not trust, let's not hope in anything other than the Lord's Christ. Simeon and Anna saw his redemption when he came as a child. We will see his final redemption when he returns in glory. But the story doesn't end there. We have more to see there in verses 41 to 52. We have the only biblical story about Jesus as a a child, as a, a young man. There in verses 39 and 40, we see 12 years pass. We don't really know what Jesus was doing except that he grew physically and spiritually, according to verse 40. We see in verse 41 that he's now 12 years old and that he and Joseph and Mary head into Jerusalem with a large group of friends and family to celebrate the annual Passover celebration. And so there's this story, this sort of odd vignette tucked away in the narrative. There's nothing really complicated about it. The, The caravan basically leaves Jerusalem to head back to Nazareth and Jesus doesn't go with them. Mary and Joseph just assume that he's uh, amongst friends and relatives, but he's not. As someone who's left his kids at church multiple times, I, I take comfort in knowing that there's biblical precedent for that oversight. 
But after returning to Jerusalem, they search frantically. They find Jesus in the temple. And he's astounding the teachers of the law with his understanding. Now, after this story, we don't see Jesus for another 18 years. We read there in verse 52 that Jesus continued to grow physically and spiritually. But we're not going to see him again until he's about 30 years old and ready to begin his public ministry. So what's the point of this seemingly random and insignificant story? Remember, Luke is giving a, a careful, ordered, researched account of Jesus' life. You can see why Mary might remember this like it was yesterday, right? If you've ever lost your child in a public place, you know that moment of panic, right? It surely was burned into Mary's soul. And so if she was Luke's source for this material, it's clear where it came from. But, but why would Luke include it? Why tell us this story and not a different story from Jesus' childhood? Well, I think Luke wants to show us something important about Jesus, about who he is and what he's come to do. Because this little incident highlights the fact that Jesus is no ordinary child. Now, Mary already knew that, of course, but it doesn't seem like she had really come to grips with everything that it meant. You see that misunderstanding there in verse 48. Mary's upset at Jesus. Son, where have you been? Your father and I have been looking everywhere for you. And Jesus' words there in verse 49 are, are well chosen. He says, I've actually been with my father the whole time. Right? Let's, let's remember, Mom, I, I love Joseph and I respect him and we're told that he's obedient to him, but, but remember who my father really is. Remember why I'm here. Uh, that phrase that there at the end of verse 49 translated as, I must be in my father's house. It, it could mean that. It could also mean I must be about my father's business. Uh, Jesus, as he grows, has a sense of his unique sonship towards God. He realizes now, we're not entirely sure how, but that he has a, a unique relationship and a unique mission from God, his Father. And what we see here, even this early on in Luke's account, is that the shadow of the cross is already starting to fall across this young little family. Simeon had made this strange little prophecy to Mary there in verse 35. He says there, A sword will pierce through your own soul also. This child is a, a source of great joy, consolation, redemption. Simeon's like, I can go now. This is great. But he tells Mary, this child is going to be a sword through your soul. Because this child is not going to grow up and get a good job and marry a nice girl and give you grandkids. But he's going to be rejected by his own people. He's going to be tried and beaten in this very same city. Some 20 years later, he's going to die a horrible, bloody, painful death. And so Luke records for us here perhaps the first time that Mary had a taste of that pain. Perhaps this was the first time that she began to realize, some 12 years later, what Simeon had meant. Look how she describes her frantic search there in verse 48. She says, we were looking for you in great distress. She was experiencing great anxiety, great pain. Right? Of course, all of this suffering comes to a head at the cross, where Mary watches her child, 
that she had that she had carried in her womb, that she had given birth to, that she had brought to the temple, that she had brought for Passover celebrations. Her beloved child died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. You know, on that day, as Jesus hung on the cross, if there was one woman on earth whose heart was broken, it was Mary. In John's account of Jesus' crucifixion, we we read this moment, this tender heart-wrenching moment in all of the blood and gore and suffering in John 19 verse 26 when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he told he said to his mother woman behold your son and he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her into his own home Mary was there at the foot of the cross I think that's what this incident in the temple is all about It's Jesus and Mary beginning to come to grips with the fact that theirs will not be a normal mother-son relationship. Luke makes the point of telling us there that Jesus was obedient to her and to Joseph. There was no unrighteousness in his conduct towards them. But ultimately, Jesus wasn't born to do Joseph and Mary's will. He had to be about his father's business. He had a mission to carry out. He'd been born to die. Friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, you need to grapple with, you need to wrestle with this truth that Jesus' whole life was pointed toward the cross. Everything he did in life was a prelude to his crucifixion. I wonder what you make of that. If you're going to understand what Jesus did, you first need to understand how badly you need a Savior. The Bible teaches us that every human being is imprisoned by sin. My guess is that if you're honest with yourself, you don't even need me to convince you of that. My guess is that you can look at the world around you and see the effects of sin all over the place. That you can look at your own heart and see there's ways you don't even meet your own standards, let alone God's. You can see ways that you've failed to be who you ought to be. You've done things you shouldn't have done. You've left things undone that you ought to have taken care of. Each and every one of us has rebelled against God, willingly choosing to be in bondage to sin. But the good news is that Jesus came to redeem us from that slavery. He is God's own son. He he could have been born to, to luxury and ease and enjoyed a life of comfort, but instead he was born as a man in order to suffer and die for us. On that cross, Jesus took all of the punishment and death that our sins deserved so that we might be free. Friend, if you can have some sense of your own guilt, some sense of your own failure, then then you're ready to respond in the way that Simeon and Anna responded to this good news. That God has sent a, a comforter. That God has sent a redeemer. That Jesus came to bring healing and freedom to sin-sick people at the cost of his own life. But friends, this consolation only comes to those who don't take consolation in themselves. This redemption only comes to those who understand that they cannot redeem themselves. It's the first step to experiencing God's salvation is, is turning your back on yourself, denying yourself, turning from your sin. And putting your trust in Christ. Take refuge in him. Trust in him for redemption and forgiveness. 
Friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, but you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, we'd love to talk to you more about it. I'd encourage you to talk to the friend who invited you this morning. You can talk to anybody you've seen up here. You can talk to me after the service. We would be delighted to walk you through what it means to find redemption this Christmas. And Christian, as we walk back out into the world, can you see the the profound effect that God's salvation has on the way we live our lives here and now? Again, in a way, we find ourselves in a position not completely unlike Simeon and Anna. We find ourselves waiting. And we're not sure when the waiting will be over. It's not like Christmas morning that's coming in six days. We're waiting for something we know will happen, but we're not sure when. We know that our consolation and our redemption has come. We know that he went about his father's business. We know that his mother's heart was broken. And we know that he did all of those things for us. But on the other hand, we wait. Because our consolation and our redemption is coming. We've seen him by faith. And we wait to see him with our own eyes. Hebrews 9 verse 28 says this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, a sword through his mother's heart, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 1 Peter 1.13 tells us this, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we don't know what the coming day, weeks, months, or years hold for us. But we do know that the one who came and died for us is coming again. And one day we, like Simeon, will will see the one that we've been waiting for our whole lives. And we'll see him face to face. And we'll be able to say that we've seen God's redemption. So as we come now to the Lord's table, this is the perfect way for us to participate in the same faith that motivated and animated Simeon and Anna. Because what this passage shows us so clearly is that God's salvation is not a concept, not a philosophy. It's not a series of moral commands. It's not a worldview. It's not a lifestyle. But it's a person. Simeon holds the infant Jesus in his hands and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. God's salvation is a person. That's the great news of Christmas. In order to experience God's salvation, you do not have to clean up your life. You don't have to act better. You don't have to figure anything out. You don't have to give any money. You don't have to perform a certain amount of penance to show God that you're serious. All you need is a person. You need to look to the Lord Jesus, the Son of God who took on human flesh for you, the Son of God who died on the cross for you, the Son of God who rose from the dead in victory over sin and death and everything that kept you captive, the Son of God who died and rose for your consolation and your redemption. So if you're sin-sick, if you're weary, if you're overwhelmed, he invites you to come today and find salvation in him. All you have to do is come, trusting that he 
is God's salvation for you. And that's, brothers and sisters, what we do at the Lord's table. We come in faith, remembering the shed blood and broken body of Jesus. And we come in faith, remembering that he is coming again and waiting patiently for the day when we will once again see God's salvation with our own eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and faithful love. Over and over again in your word, you promised Israel that you would send comfort and that you would send redemption for Jerusalem. And so we delight in your faithfulness that you kept your promise. We delight in your promise that you will uh, again uh, allow us to see your salvation when the Lord Jesus returns. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us. Help us to wait faithfully. Help us to take our identity and our joy in being numbered amongst those who have experienced this consolation and redemption. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who's come for us and died for us. And as we come to your table now, as we hear your invitation to come and have communion with you, our souls delight and we give you much glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.